Evening, everybody. Okay, one person said it back. That's always nice. Uh, hello, my name is Lachlan. I am both a pastor and a member here at Narwe Baptist Church. Um, specifically, I am the youth pastor, so they kind of wheel me out once a term at a youth service to let me preach in front of you all, uh, which is always really, really nice. Um, now, I don't know about you, but I'm the type of person who likes to go like right up to the line, but then stop just before the end. Because I like to be a good person. I want to know where the line is, but I also want to go right up to the line. So here's an example. Um, the Bible tells me to obey the laws of the land. Um, but because I'm a male in my 20s, I also know I was born to be a race car driver. <laughs> At least that's what the insurance companies think when they charge me so much. Um, now, <laughs> when I first got my P's, me and my friends used to do this thing that we called speed limit races. You see, we would race from point A to point B, and the only rule is you had to follow the speed limit. Now, technically, that's okay. Somehow, we, if you watch the races, it really wasn't okay. But technically, we had found exactly where the line was, and we'd stopped just before it. Um, another example for you. Uh, the Bible tells you not to lie. Now, last weekend, I proposed to my girlfriend. It went well. Uh, she's now my fiancé, so that's great. Um, and she, she knew it was coming. And at some point, she asked me, Lachlan, are you going to propose to me this weekend? And I said, I don't have the ring. She didn't know that I entrusted it to a friend the day before, so technically I didn't lie. Now again, I had found the line, I'd gone right up to it, but then I'd stopped. Now, in some areas of life, the line is really, really obvious. However, and this, I don't think this is controversial, the Bible doesn't tell us about every single situation you will find yourself in in life. And so sometimes we need to work a little bit harder to try and figure out where that line is. What is the line? How far does our Christian freedom extend? Now, at youth, we've been slowly working through the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, and this week, we're up to 1 Corinthians 8. Now, if I had a time machine, I'd go back in time and rearrange the schedule so that we we're up to a much easier passage this week when I had to preach in front of you all. But for now, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 8. And what we find in 1 Corinthians 8 is a really good and godly principle for finding where that line is. And here's the principle. Love will limit our liberty. Yes, I'm very proud of the three L's. But first, if you're not a youth in this room, then you've just been dumped into the middle of a series we've been doing for a while. So let's explain a little bit what has happened in the first seven chapters of 1 Corinthians. The very first word of 1 Corinthians states that the Apostle Paul is the author. Now, it seems that Paul had received both an oral report and a written letter from the Corinthians. And so he knows a lot about what is going on in that situation. And what this report and what this letter revealed is that the church at Corinth was plagued with serious problems of division, sexual immorality, and pride. It also revealed some serious theological misunderstandings on the topics of marriage, divorce, idolatry, worship, and resurrection. So in response to all of these issues, the Apostle Paul decided to write what is the second longest letter in the New Testament to deal with all of these different problems that were occurring. 
Um, because he had received a letter from the Corinthians and he knew their opinion, we actually see quotes all throughout the letter from the Corinthians about what they're saying. We even see that in our passage itself in verse 1 and in verse 4. Now, when we hit youth this term, we spent the first several weeks of youth looking at the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. And this is where Paul deals with the topic of disunity. He encourages everyone to be united and stop dividing into groups. Next, we turn to the next few chapters, which deals with sex and relationships. Yes, that was an interesting night of youth group. Um, But now we turn to 1 Corinthians 8, and this is where Paul turns to deal with a really specific issue that the church in Corinth is dealing with. And that issue is, what do we do with meat that is sacrificed to pagan idols? Now, I don't know about you, but that is a very, very foreign concept. Uh, You were probably sitting there as the Bible was being read going, how does this apply? Like, I do not understand this situation whatsoever. But you see, 2,000 years ago, pagan temples were everywhere. And almost every day you would find a priest sacrificing some part of an animal to one of their gods. In fact, these temples would sacrifice so much meat that there was more meat there than could ever be consumed just by the priests who would eat it afterwards. And so these temples actually turned into banquet halls where different guilds and clubs could meet together and actually feast together in these halls. If there was any leftover meat after that, then that meat would be sent to the marketplace where it could be sold for a profit. And so you see, this was just a normal part of everyday life. And this is where chapter 8 begins. Apparently, some of the Corinthian Christians were going into the temple and attending these dinner parties, eating the food that had been sacrificed to idols. And here's the key thing. Most of them believed that they were totally free to do so. With the knowledge that Jesus is supreme over everything, therefore, I have Christian freedom. This expression of Christian freedom is something that we find all throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians. In both chapter 6 and chapter 9, the Corinthians say, I have the right to do anything. And this is true to an extent, but Paul, twice after he quotes them, says, but not everything is beneficial. So on this specific topic of meat sacrifice to idols, Paul needs to help them figure out a principle to see whether this is okay. And so, as he starts off the first several verses, he makes the point that love is superior to knowledge. Now, if you're taking notes at home, this is point one or four. I'll say it again. Love is superior to knowledge. You see, Paul tells us that the knowledge we have here on earth, even at its best, even at its most completeness, is actually incomplete. No matter how much we think we know, it is only a glimpse or a shadow of what is to come. In contrast, love is permanent. And this is where Paul plays with us a little bit. You see, he writes, those who think they know something know nothing. Which, at least when I first read through, made me think that the next phrase would have to be, and those who love God have true knowledge. But that's not what he says. In fact, he writes, whoever loves God is known by God. And I don't know about you, but to me, this feels like a little bit of an anticlimax. He's just told me that my knowledge is useless and that I'm known by God. And in some ways, I'm a bit like, whoop-de-doo, God knows everything. Thanks for giving me no new information, Paul. But you see, the New Testament makes it really clear 
that God actually knows those who follow him in a really special and unique and intimate way. And this is what Paul is referring to here. And you see, those who belong to God, those who are known by God in this unique, intimate way, also love God and love their neighbor. And so these verses actually turn in to a fairly gentle rebuke to those, myself very much included, who give too high of a place to knowledge. You see, I spent three years at Bible college trying to cram as much information into my head as I could, as much knowledge as I could gain, yet I never actually had a class on how to love well. And yet Paul is exceptionally clear in these first few verses. It is love rather than knowledge that should be the Christian's guide. Knowledge won't always help us find where that line is, but love certainly will help us find where that line is. So that's his first point, that love is superior to knowledge. He then moves into verses 4 to 6, and having rebuked those who see knowledge as more important than love, he does something very, very interesting. And what he does is he agrees with the Corinthians. Now, for those youth who've been coming to youth every Friday, this comes as a shock. Like, this church is falling apart. They've got a lot of wrong views on things. But in verses 4 to 6, Paul actually agrees with them and says, yes, you're right, there is only one true and living God. Paul quotes both the Corinthians and the Old Testament to prove this point. He says, we know that an idol is nothing at all in this world, which is a quote from what the Corinthians have sent to him in a letter. He then says, and that there is no God but one, which is a very famous Old Testament quote. You see, what Paul is saying here is when these pagan priests sacrifice to these idols, they're not actually sacrificing to anything at all. You see, what they're sacrificing to doesn't actually exist. Now, later on in the letter, Paul will say that there are some demonic forces at work behind these pagan sacrifices. But the main point he's making here is that the thing the priest thinks they're sacrificing to doesn't exist. That God does not exist because there is only one God. And that one God is known as the Father, who created everything and is the focus of our lives and because we should live to serve Him. This one God is also known as Jesus Christ, who created everything and is the agent through whom we can know God. Now, Paul makes it very clear that there is a unity here between God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. However, again, this is just a reminder because the Corinthians somehow almost magically, are actually right. They are actually free, from a knowledge perspective, to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. But that's when Paul leads back into his third point. And his third point is very, very similar to his first point, And is that knowledge does not make one superior. Yes, the Corinthians, in this one case, have correct knowledge. But that doesn't always mean using it. You see, the pagans feared what the gods might do to those who didn't worship them. And so some of the Corinthian Christians were probably really struggling to just trust Christ and not turn back to the gods they used to worship. And so when they saw meat being sacrificed to a god and then they ate it, their attitude towards these idols and these uh, pagan religions caused them to think that they were actually participating in idolatry. And since they believed they were participating in idolatry, they actually defiled and sinned against their own conscience. 
On the other side, you have those who were free of this fear. They ate freely and probably thought themselves superior to their uninformed brothers and sisters. But Paul warns the Corinthians here. He says that the knowledge that they are able to eat this food is such a minor thing. He says it does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat it and no better if we do. You see, pride in this knowledge is actually really misplaced. And I've actually witnessed this attitude amongst Christians when knowledge, even good and true knowledge, puffs up a Christian, ultimately causing them to be really prideful, which is a sin. Not only have I witnessed this attitude, I've been responsible for this attitude. We live in Sydney. A lot of us are well-educated. And because of that, many of you, purely because of your education, can pick up a Bible and with some of the skills you have, read it and understand it well. And this gives us a great amount of pride. And when we encounter Christians who somehow don't have this skill or this upbringing or this education, we can really think more of ourselves. We really puff ourselves up. But you see, our knowledge and skills don't make us superior to these other Christians. Let me say it again. Knowledge does not make you, and it does not make me, superior. And so we now reach Paul's entire point for this passage, which is that Christian love is to act with consideration for those with less knowledge. Or to put it in a much, much more simpler way, love limits liberty. You see, the knowledgeable Christians claimed it was their right to eat this meat and to do as they pleased. And even though they were theologically correct, Paul reminds them that no Christian, no Christian is at liberty to assert his or her rights if that means doing harm to another Christian. Paul writes, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. You see, in the following verses, Paul will teach us that the person who insists on doing anything that is allowed has not actually learnt the Christian way of love. Because by clinging to their rights, they are destroying a fellow brother or sister who feels like they are sinning against their own conscience. Now, this word destroy is actually really meant to impact us. It's mostly used in the Bible of eternal destruction. Like, this word is meant to make us shudder as we think about the consequences of our actions. Now, in this context, I think this word destroy is not necessarily being used in an eternal way, but is saying that this Christian is becoming useless and stunted in their Christian life by the actions of Christians who are clinging to their rights. And if this wasn't bad enough, Paul then says to sin or harm your brother or sister is to sin or harm Christ. This is something that Paul actually knows all too well. His very conversion story is one where he was persecuting Christians, then Jesus himself turns up and says, why are you persecuting me? You see, there's a really, really high dignity to being a Christian. It is easy to look down on some church members as unimportant or less knowledgeable, but they're not. No temple of the Holy Spirit, no body of Christ is unimportant. God lives in the weak and unknowledgeable. And so we must honour them as members of Christ and beware of sinning against Jesus. Now, Paul himself will do his utmost to see that he does not hinder any of his brothers or sisters. In verse 13, he writes, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. 
You see, if need be, Paul is so happy to become a vegetarian. I saw a recent survey a few weeks ago um, that showed that 75% of young men in Australia would rather die early than stop eating meat. (laughs) Now, I've got to admit it, this is probably me, but Paul's love for others outshines any other preference and any other desire that he has. He would willingly give up meat to stop these brothers and sisters from stumbling. Now, we obviously do not live in a society where we walk down the street and see meat being sacrificed to idols. And so that probably isn't a stumbling block that any of our Christian brothers and sisters are going to have. So how do we apply this principle of love-limiting liberty to our modern context? Now, one of the real benefits of going to Bible college um, is that every week a new missionary would visit us. And thus, we would hear some really, really interesting stories. And there was one story I heard about two years ago that I think really highlights this passage in a really helpful way. Uh, This missionary was sharing about a time that he put on a picnic for all the local people in his area. Attending the picnic was a man who had recently been converted from Islam. Now, a little girl was bringing around um, sandwiches and offering them to everyone. And so she approached him and said, would you like a sandwich? The man replies, well, what flavors do you have? Very reasonable question. And she replies, I'm sorry, but I only have ham and pork left. He then replies with, that's okay, I won't have a sandwich. Now, apparently the girl was really shocked by this and asked, but sir, you know that as a Christian, you are free from all your past dietary laws and you are free to eat ham and pork. And this man who had been converted from Islam to Christianity responded that, yes, I know I'm free to eat pork if I want, but I'm also free not to eat it. You see, I'm still involved with my family in the Near East, and I know that when I go home once a year, my father will come to me, and his first question will be, have those infidels taught you to eat the filthy hog meat yet? Now, if I say to him, yes, father, I'll be banished from my family and have no chance to tell them about the joy I've found in Jesus. But if I can say honestly to him what I've always been able to say, that no, I have not eaten any pork, then I would be admitted to the family and be able to tell them the joy I've found in Jesus Christ. Therefore, I'm free to eat, but I'm also free to not eat. This man has given up a right that he has in Christ. He has the right to eat this food. And yet, for the gospel, he has chosen to give it up. He has limited his liberty out of love. Now, Paul would absolutely advocate such an approach. In the very next chapter of 1 Corinthians, he says that he gives up the right to food and drink, he gives up the right to marriage, and he gives up the right to payment for the gospel. And so I think one of the first huge applications that Paul is leading us towards in this passage is that we should be prepared to give up our rights for the gospel. Now, for most of us, even this example is very, very far from home. Um, And the text itself, in the passage we looked at, was referring to making a fellow Christian stumble rather than our witness. And so I need to give you all another example, uh, one that ideally is a little closer to home. And the easiest example I could think of was alcohol. Now, you see, the Bible is clear that if you're of a legal drinking age, therefore following the commands to follow the laws of the land... And if 
you drink in moderation, therefore not losing self-control, then drinking alcohol is fine. Hopefully you don't just cut that one little bit and you include the early bits too. Um, now you see, drinking in moderation is fine and we're, we are allowed to drink alcohol. However, if you were friends with a recovering alcoholic, what would you do? You could be like the Corinthians here, who were just asserting their right, their right to drink, their right to eat. Or you could take the attitude of Paul and go, you know what, for the sake of not causing my Christian brother or sister to stumble, I will give up a right that I have. I will give up the ability to drink alcohol. Now, if Paul was prepared to say, I'll become a vegetarian if that doesn't make anyone stumble, I feel absolutely confident that Paul would also say he would happily give up alcohol to make sure that no one in his life would stumble because of it. As I reflect on last year, I can think of many other examples uh, of this principle not being enacted by the global church. You see, the number of Christians I heard complaining and then flaunting things such as lockdowns and wearing masks was disappointing. Yes, there was a lot of factors going on there, but you see, our go-to Christian principle should be that out of love, we happily give up our rights. Now, I'm sure there are many more examples, and I encourage you to spend some time thinking about how you could apply this principle. Uh, But just like how the Bible doesn't cover every single topic or situation we'll encounter, I can't cover every single topic or situation we'll encounter in my examples. But what I can say in unison with God's Word is that whenever we are facing a situation, think less about knowledge, think less about what is the right thing, and consider more what is the loving thing to do. Now, before I end, I do need to say one thing about sort of the natural limit of this principle. Uh, D.K. Lowry says, it is unlikely that Paul saw this weak brother as permanently shackling the freedom of the knowledgeable Christians. You see, we're not meant to just live this way forever, not eating meat sacrificed to idols forever. Instead, we're meant to teach all our Christian brothers and sisters what is within their Christian freedom. That is why we preach sermons. That is why we encourage you to meet together in home groups. That's why we encourage you to read the Bible on your own so that you will be a more knowledgeable Christian However, while this teaching, while this learning, while this growing is happening, we should never use our knowledge to act in a way that is inconsiderate of those who do not yet have that knowledge. And therefore, by not having their knowledge, may feel like they are sinning by doing a certain action. We must always act with Christian love. Now, in wrapping things up, what I want to say is that knowledge is important. But we have something more important. We have love love for others, love for God, love for ourselves. And due to this love, we at times will sacrifice our liberties, whether that be the right to eat certain things, whether that be the right to drink certain things, to go certain places, or to participate in certain activities. Now, Catherine is about to be baptized, to make a commitment before all of us about how she loves Jesus and how he has saved her. This commitment is to follow the ways of Christ all her life. And while this teaching in 1 Corinthians 8 is hard and confusing and humbling, sacrificing our liberties to love others well is part of living that Christian life. And so, let me pray for all of us as we attempt to live this way. Dear Lord, 
Thank you that you gave up all your rights and liberties to come to earth as a servant, humbling yourself even to death on a cross. May you help us live a life that follows your example and love those in our life well. Amen.